Today's scripture lesson comes from the letter to the Colossians. And I'm reading from chapter 3, the first part. Paul has just presented one of the highest Christological statements in all of Scripture. He has spoken about the the fullness of the deity dwelling in Jesus Christ. He has pointed the Colossian Christians to, to Christ, who is the eternal Son, and he has explained to the Colossians how every promise of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ the Lord. And he has talked about, um, par- primarily he's, he's spoken about our sanctification and how Christ Jesus is the surety and earnest of our sanctification. Not only is Jesus the one who is the foundation and ground of our justification, was absolutely true as, as Romans makes so clear in, in Galatians, but Jesus Christ is also the ground and the, um, the foundation of our sanctification, which is also important to understand, that when we pursue holiness, we're not doing it on our own. We are doing it in the strength of Jesus Christ, in whom we dwell. And then Paul writes this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another 
in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. May our hearts and minds be open to the wonderful truth that's contained in these words. And may we not only see them as as words on a page, but principles, the very truth to live by. And God gives us the power to do that. Now, if I continue to read, it's really, um, this is so true of of all scripture, but really you need to read the entire uh, letter to the Colossians to really appreciate the the force of, of this argument. And, and so that's why I did a little bit of the background. But if I continued with this uh, to the end of the chapter, Paul would have turned his attention, because Paul does, he turns his attention to the next point in this grand argument that he's making that Jesus Christ is king over all. You might think, well, what, what would, if you were writing this letter, what would the next point in the, uh, um, in the letter be? He's just talked about how um, Christ is all in all, that he is the supreme eternal son and we are in union with him. And then he's talked about how in Christ we can put to death our sin once and for all because Christ is the one who has accomplished the conquering of sin and death on the cross. So because we are in Christ, we can conquer sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he encourages us to put on our new self. Now that we know all of this, we can put on our new self. And then he concludes with what? He turns his attention not to the government, not to culture, but to the family. And he opens up the truth of the family and how Jesus Christ is at the center of the family. And and he explains how we are all in Christ and we all have our part to play in this great and grand work of sanctification. We who are Christians, we who are our husbands and wives, we who are our children and parents, we who are workers and employees and, and employers, We who are members of the body of Christ, whether we are married or single, whether we are children or adults, whether we own a business or whether we work for a business, he brings it all together. That's what's so fascinating about this this, um, letter is it terminates on the family and the rejuvenation and restoration of the true purpose of the family, which is to give God the glory in what we say and what we do, and what we desire. And that's why Paul ends the the passage I just read. Verse 17, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed. And and, um, by implication, he means also there our desires, because... It's our desires that form what we say and what we do. Our will comes first. And so he has that front and center, although he doesn't explain it explicitly. Whatever we do in our desires, we are to do in the name of the Lord. That is basically a picture 
of sanctification. Whatever we do, wherever we are, whether we are pushing a broom at GM or whether we are calling the shots in the boardroom at GM or wherever, whatever position in society, wherever we are, whatever um, ethnicity we, we have, whatever culture we've come out of, wherever we are going, whatever we do, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we might know that theoretically. Oh, sure, I know I need to do everything for the Lord. But do we do that practically? Have we put that, do we have a, uh, a programmatic, pragmatic plan for that? And when we fail at doing whatever we do in the name of the Lord, do we return to the living God and seek his forgiveness and ask for renewal? Because that's what Paul is, uh, is urging the Colossians and by extension us as well. And it's an amazing vision this vision of sanctification that uh, um, sometimes Christians make the mistake of thinking that justification is the be-all and the end-all. It is the beginning, yes, and it is absolutely critical that we be justified in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and by his blood and be robed in his righteousness. Absolutely. But the Christian walk, the Christian life doesn't end with, with justification, and any Christian who has been around a number of years discovers that firsthand. The great enterprise of the Christian life after justification is sanctification. And that is hard. And it is grueling. It is tough, and we often, often fail. We stumble and fall. But Christ is so faithful that when we stumble and fall, he does not abandon us, but that he is the one who continues to work in us. And Ephesians, the opening chapter of Ephesians, um, expresses that so wonderfully when Paul says that same resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ to new life is at work in you. That resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ to new life is at work in you. And this isn't a future reality. You know, we're, we're looking forward to the day when that resurrection power will come to us after we die that will be raised to new life. No, it's very clear from, a, from Ephesians chapter one that that resurrection power is at work in Christians the moment that they are saved, the moment that God effectually calls them by Christ and brings them into union with Christ. It is then that Christians have that resurrection power at work in them. That resurrection power is at work in you as well. That resurrection power that dispels the darkness and draws the, the sinner away from the darkness, the domain of darkness is, as, uh, um, as Paul writes in the first chapter of Colossians, we have been transferred from the, the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's Son. And that power, the Holy Spirit, continues to work in us and through us. Whatever we do, do in the name of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, how are you doing 
in your walk with Jesus Christ? How are you doing in your, in your, um, in your public demonstration of the new life that resides in you and it's overflowing in you? How are you doing? How are your words? How are your deeds? And even more importantly, because it gets to the heart of the matter, how are your desires? How are your desires? What is it that you desire in life? What is it that you crave? What is it that you spend your time doing throughout the week? What do you prefer to do in the week? What is it? What are your desires? What is your heart's desires? Because Paul is, is making a very fine point here. He's saying, consider this very closely. Pay attention to this. This is of the utmost importance. Where is your heart? Where is your heart? Where do you dwell? Where do your thoughts, your fantasies, your daydreams, your goals in life, where do they, where do they dwell? Paul wants us to consider this very carefully. And so he, ins- he has it part of, of this letter and, and God inscripturates it in his word so that we would pause and really consider this. Now, of course, you've, if you're a Christian and, and you're born again, you've, you've considered this many times. But is there ever a time in this life before we enter glory when we can say with utmost confidence that we have achieved our goal? that we have arrived. John Wesley believed that, um, that it was possible to attain perfection in this life. And there have been Christian movements that have said that as well, have taught that as well. John Wesley was honest enough with himself that he, he knew that he was not the one who had reached that perfection, but he thought at least theoretically that it was possible for someone to attain perfection in this life. But that's not true. It's only in the life to come that we will have perfect and, and full um, fellowship with God and, and we will no longer sin in thought and word and deed. This life is a life of travail for us. There's struggle, there's strife, and we are either fighting against the flesh and, our desi- and, and the, the, the wicked desires that bubble up in us or we are giving into it. This life is a fight. This life is a struggle. There is real conflict. And anyone who tells you otherwise is ignoring the great witness of Scripture and the preponderance of evidence in Scripture. It is a a work where we are fighting daily against our flesh. In fact, Paul says again and again and again in Scripture to mortify the flesh, which is just the the Latinized way of saying, kill it. Kill the flesh. So are we doing that? Are you doing that? Are you mortifying the flesh? Are you mortifying your desires that are always just that little whisper You can come down this path and don't worry, it won't lead to any danger and you get a little bit farther down the path and don't worry, you won't be injured and you go a little bit farther down the path and you're snared because you listened to another voice other than the voice of God. You listened not to your conscience, but you seared it. And so we have to fight. 
We have to fight against sin and the flesh. And Paul says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. We need to remind ourselves of this great truth that everything we do is to be done in the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. On, this, on the cross, as Jesus was dying, there were two thieves nailed on the cross beside him, two thieves representing mankind in a way, two thieves that had pursued their own desires. They were almost certainly covenant children because they understood in a nascent way the truth of God and his promises. And they began the day scorning and reviling Jesus. And Matthew and and Mark tell us that both of them were reviling Jesus, along with the crowd and the Romans. They had pursued their, their sin, and they were happy in their sin. Even at the moment of death, they were satisfied with their life of sin. And then something remarkable happens. Jesus turns his attention to God the Father, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there is a change of heart in the second thief, and he turns to his compatriot who is continuing to revile Christ, and he says to his compatriot, have you no shame? For we are being justly punished for the sins that we've committed in the flesh. But this man, indicating Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And the fullness of that meaning is that he is without sin. That second thief suddenly has a vision of Christ that goes beyond just the earthly visage of Christ and he sees that Christ really is the Savior and he says this man is perfect. He doesn't deserve to die, but we do. And what does he say to Christ? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This thief, at the end of his life, although he was a notorious sinner and did great acts of wickedness in order to be nailed to a cross, that was the worst kind of execution that the Romans could mete out. There were other ways that they could, that he, they could have capitally punished um, sinners, but they left crucifixion for the worst, the most inveterate sinners, those who were most uh, unrepentant and had, done, had um, wreaked the worst havoc were crucified. So this guy was, was the bottom of the barrel or the top of the, the heap, however you want to look at it. I mean, he was a wicked guy. But he turns to Christ and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a tacit understanding there. He, re, he recognizes that, first of all, he knows Jesus by name, but he also recognizes that Jesus will live again. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom that death would not conquer Jesus. But there's something even more remarkable here. The second thief recognizes that this man who is nailed to the cross beside him is no mere human. He is a king because he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom and only kings of kingdoms. So this second thief recognizes that Jesus is going to conquer death and he is the king of the eternal kingdom. And this covenant child who threw all of it away in order to become a, uh, um, a, a, a career criminal at the end of his life turns to God and pleads for forgiveness and Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus covers 
that man's sins. Covers them. So that when God looks at that second thief, he sees only a forgiven man and a man clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's a wonderful picture of how Christ sanctifies, justifies, and then sanctifies. And think about it. Paul says, in word and deed, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ. What did that second thief do? In word and deed, he pleaded with God for forgiveness and pleaded with the Father that mercy would be given to him. And God was faithful and he forgave that second thief and in a wonderful way communicated to that second thief his mercy. Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, spoke to that thief and spoke to him words of assurance, words of mercy, words of compassion. He could have rebuked that thief for all that he'd done. You know, he could have taken him aside and said, you know, I am going to forgive you in a moment, but first I'm going to really verbally trounce you and point out all of your wickedness. I'm going to, I've got this list here and all of these wicked things that you've done, beginning with thievery, but because he was a criminal who was um, nailed to the cross, he was almost certainly violent towards other people. He could have brought up all of that laundry list of sin before he forgave them, but he didn't. Instead, he spoke words of peace and compassion to that man in the final moments of his life. And he opened up a picture of heaven for that man. Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. For a covenant child who was uh, raised in, in a covenant family, which is almost certainly what the second thief was, to hear the word paradise almost certainly would have brought tears to his eyes as he thought about all that he had thrown away in order to pursue a path of sin and all that he was gaining, not because of his own righteousness, but because of Jesus Christ and Christ's righteousness. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not a hundred years from now or a thousand years. Not if you, you know, after your family um, lights a, a thousand votive candles in your favor and, and pray to the saints and pray to Mary or, or whatever. Or you go on a pilgrimage or none of that. None of that. Because Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. And he saves to the utmost those who trust in him. There is nothing else that we need to do but come to Christ and lay our burden down before him. Everything, all that we have done, all that we have left undone, brought before the Lord and ask him, Lord, bring me into paradise that I might be with you. And Jesus gives that second thief that wonderful promise. Jesus is saying, Today you will be with me in paradise to all of those who are in Christ and who worry and fret about their walk of sanctification. Doesn't that include us all? Haven't we all failed this week in thought, in word, in deed, in our desires to please the living God? Haven't we set out this week, you know, we're going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And all come, or most of it comes to naught. Maybe we've achieved a little bit. 
but we haven't achieved the, um, the utmost of our goals. And Jesus comes along and he saves us to the uttermost. He speaks words of peace and assurance to us. And he is the one who has accomplished not only justification, but our sanctification. He has completed it in himself. He has fulfilled every aspect of the law. Every aspect. Not only of the the civil law and the ceremonial law, but of the utmost importance, he has accomplished all of the moral law. He was the one who perfectly accomplished the moral law in thought and word and deed. And three times, God the Father declared to his son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And God was able to say that because Jesus Christ actually pleased his son in everything he did. So that when you stumble and fall in your sanctification, look to Christ and remember that he is the one who guarantees that you will be fully and perfectly sanctified in the life to come. And persevere now because his resurrectional power is at work in you. God raised Jesus Christ to new life. And that power, that rising power, is in us as well and in the church to the praise and to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful work of justification that Christ accomplished on the cross perfectly and completely. When he said and declared, it is finished, He was speaking about the the work of redemption, Heavenly Father, the wonderful work that he accomplished by the shedding of his blood and his perfect remission of our sins. But Father, we also thank you for the perfect work of his sanctification too, that he accomplished the law, the moral law. He always did what pleases you in thought and word and deed. Thus he proved that he was the perfect atoning sacrifice, that he was the lamb without blemish. Father, you have given us your son. And this is a a declaration of, of your love for us, that you love us, that you have a grand plan for us to bring us into perfect fellowship with you and in the life to come. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live but Christ Jesus who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Heavenly Father, this is your great plan. And we give you all the praise and the glory. We gladly receive and rest in Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that you would keep us faithful until we run this race and enter glory where we will be with you forever and ever. Amen.